This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Before we start the show, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy Kick-Ass Politics, I hope you'll help us reach our goal of raising our full production budget for 2016 by donating on our website at kickasspolitics.com or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today is two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning conservative political cartoonist Michael Ramirez. His cartoons have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Post, Time Magazine, National Review, and U.S. News and World Report and they're syndicated in over 550 newspapers and magazines. His work can be seen every weekday in Investor's Business Daily, where he also serves as the co-editor. In addition to winning the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in 1994 and 2008, he's a three-time winner of the Society of Professional Journalists' Sigma Delta Chi Award for Excellence in Journalism, and he's a recipient of the H.L. Mencken Award for Best Editorial Cartoon. He's also published two books of his cartoons titled Everyone Has a Right to My Opinion and his new book, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. Today, Michael Ramirez will talk about what makes good political satire, what's fair game, and when's too soon. Plus, we'll discuss the very first political cartoon that he drew in college, how President Obama has been a gift from the gods of comedy, and how one innocent drawing led to a not-so-friendly call from the Secret Service. With my guest today, Michael Ramirez, coming up in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I'm recording from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, and I'm joined by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist Michael Ramirez. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, Michael, you recently released a new book of cartoons called Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. That is something like 272 pages, I think, of cartoons lampooning President Obama and the Obama years in Washington. When he took office, did you ever think that you'd be able to get that much mileage out of Barack Obama? Well, you know, like all elections, uh, you get sort of a, a, a insight into who these people are if you look carefully into their backgrounds. And I think Barack Obama really revealed through the history of his writing um, – his participation in the uh, Chicago legislature, you got a real feeling of who he really was. And, you know, I don't think he was really trying to hide that fact, you know, even though he ran as kind of a centrist. And so it was pretty clear to me from the very beginning when he was running that he was going to turn out to be the kind of progressive president that we all feared. And so I, I, like, to, uh, I like to call this book a visual indictment 
of the uh, seven and a half years of progressive policies, destructive progressive policies of a Barack Obama. Or, or you could a- even entertain it as kind of a visual guide to impeachment if we ever got the numbers to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I love the cover of it. Uh, and this is one of my favorites, I think. You have uh, this donkey in a suit meant to be the Democrat Party, and he, his feet are uh, in cement, like a mafia-style hit, and he's sinking to the bo- bottom of the ocean, and the, the cement that is labeled Obamacare. Yeah. And we all saw that in the midterm elections. It's, right. It was exactly and, and, and what this today, cartoon depicts. You know, Obamacare remains uh, hugely unpopular, I think, by 60% of the population. And, you know, part of it is because the promises that were made, uh, you know, you can keep your doctor, it'll be $2,500 less. All those things proved to be untrue. And, and uh, like, like uh, President Obama, those things were predictable. The outcome was predictable, that the, uh, the costs for Obamacare were going to e- escalate and the deductions that uh, uh, they were, they were going to make, the health insurance companies, would be bigger and that the amount of premiums were going to be larger. All these things were predicted. And so even... In, in passing this Obamacare, uh, they had to utilize a special process because they couldn't do it the regular way because it was hugely unpopular. So I think this, this has come back to affect him and uh, the Democratic Party in this new presidential election. Yeah, and in the introduction to the book, you say the Obama presidency is the Peter principle taken to its worst extreme. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, as I say in the introduction of the book, the Peter principle is when somebody rises to their level of incompetence. The Obama principle is when that person gets elected president of the United States. (laughs) And you know what? Uh, The uh, the National Review called my introduction the best factual takedown of the Obama administration. (laughs) But, you know, frankly, that's, that's really it in a nutshell. When you look at what the results of these kind of disastrous pro- progressive policies, we've seen how it's been reaped uh, both domestically and on foreign policy levels, how everything's just sort of fallen apart and America has lost a lot of prestige and a, lost, uh, a lot of uh, you know, mileage as far as being the leader of the world. Uh, through this administration. Um, Just to give people an example, which I know this really doesn't work in an audio (laughs) medium very well, but perhaps with your permission, I'll put up a couple up uh, on our Instagram or so so people can actually know what we're talking about here. But uh, you have one where you have a a depiction of the Titanic and uh, a voice bubble from the boat says, uh, good news, we have a full ship, 7.1 million passengers. And then the under Titanic on the back, it reads uh, Titanic Obamacare. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorites is where I've got uh, Carl, Carl Marx represented as the uh, as Obamacare, and he's he's the, the, he's making a house call, and he's got a rubber glove <laughs> yeah. on, and he's saying, "Bend over." Oh yeah, that one. I love that one. I know the exact one you're talking about, and there's so many great ones in here, and I have a million of them labeled. But uh, well, you know, I could probably pick anyone here. But. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to say, when people ask me, you know, how do you come up with your ideas? Uh, these days, it's more like stenography than anything creative. In fact, I was just, I, you know, I've been giving a number of speeches huh. on these book tours. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I said on, on uh, Maria Bartiromo's program last, uh, you know, last week on, on Fox Business News that uh, I have the best gag writers in the world working for me. They're called politicians. <laughs> that, that's when they're not on vacation or out playing golf. Yeah. In fact, I, I think, uh, you know, my hand's getting tired not from drawing cartoons, 
but from writing thank you notes to the Obama administration <laughs> for making my job so darn easy. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I finally found uh, another one that was one of my favorites here. Uh, I think this is supposed to be Sonia Sotomayor when she was uh, doing her confirmation. And she has her hand up and she says, I swear to uphold the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth unless empathy dictates otherwise. So help me, wise Latina woman. <laughs> you know, and, and what I love about that cartoon, and, and of course we're going through the process now, now that uh, Antonin Scalia has died. Yeah. Uh, you know, what people don't realize is there are serious issues being dealt with in this, uh, this election. One of them being that nine out of the 13 appellate courts are run by huge progressive majorities. Yeah. And frankly, there's a lot of things at stake because these these uh, appellate courts are trying to legislate from the bench, and the only the only thing that uh, was the impediment to that was really a Scalia and the five four sometimes conservative majority in the Supreme Court. So now you're going to see an appointment on the Supreme Court level, and, and uh, we're seeing one, you know, perhaps this year, perhaps next year, but you're probably going to see two more after that, and these are lifetime appointments. So it's a generational shift in the court. And it will affect us for a long, long time. Yeah, and you know, actually, since you brought that up, I have to ask you this. I was going to save this for the for later on, but I was I was going to get around to the idea of humor and sacred cows and anything that we can't touch. Right. So, toward the end of the podcast, I was going to ask sort of uh, your for maybe therapy or your personal advice on a particular situation. In my case, mm-hmm. um, just a few days ago, after uh, Justice Scalia died. A good friend of mine, or actually really a friend of a friend on Facebook, was fueling the whole Scalia death conspiracy theory and saying, why isn't there an autopsy and all that? And really more to mock him than ever Scalia, who I have great respect for. I made the comment on his Facebook. I said uh, something along the lines of uh, maybe it was maybe it was one of those David Carradine situations, which Google it if you don't know, folks, right. uh, about right. how he went. It was uh, unusual, to say the least. Anyways, this guy got irate, and he launched into a, a bunch of personal attacks and said, you're the reason the GOP is falling apart. <laughs> For me, having met Justice Scalia and knowing what a sense of humor he had, I felt that the bigger dishonor to his memory was wingnut conspiracy theories, which he had no respect for, rather than my vaguely sarcastic comment. <laughs> right, right. So you tell me, as, as, a, as a humorist, was I out of line? Did I cross a line? Well, no. I mean, I, in fact, Scalia— Because I did, will apologize yeah. if, uh, to this person if well, you tell you know, me that I crossed it, the line. It's an obvious joke, and I think Scalia— uh, you know, was a master at these very clever jokes, and and uh, he probably might have made a retort about Ginsburg and holding a mirror underneath her nose to make sure that uh, she hasn't <laughs> found the same fate. Oh, that's right. You know, one thing I'll, I'll say about uh, political cartooning is you know, we don't do uh, cartoons, you know, controversial cartoons for the sake of controversy. We don't do humorous cartoons for the sake of humor. I mean, there's a real point to what we do, and I'm, I'm a big believer in editorial cartooning as journalism. So, you know, as far as boundaries go and limitations, only where the, the controversy itself might overshadow the point I'm trying to make. Because, you know, political huh. cartoons are constructed in the same way that sort of television advertising is. And like the, the Super Bowl, you have five seconds to capture the reader's attention and then another five seconds to really deliver the message that you want to deliver. So. Yeah. Those those are the important parts elements of the of the cartoon. In fact, the most important element being the message itself. And if you use humor and it uh, 
and it overshadows the point that you're making, then uh, you lose the device. Yeah, that's true. But uh, well, then I'm curious. Do you have any sacred cows? Uh, sorry, issue-wise or situationally, are there any sacred cows that you, as a cartoonist, will not touch? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm inherently evil. <laughs> I will go where no man has gone before. In fact, you know what's funny about this whole Trump Trump phenomenon? There, everybody's so happy that there's a, a vocal person out there that's blunt and obnoxious. I've been blunt and obnoxious for the last 32 years of my career. <laughs> the only thing that I won't do, though, I won't cross the line that overshadows the point that I'm trying to make. For instance, yeah. one, one of the, the, uh, the examples that I'll give in tonight's speech here at the Reagan Library is uh, I'll talk about Johnny Cochran. There was an idea that instantly came to me when Johnny Cochran died. You know, of course, Johnny got O.J. Simpson off on a murder charge. Um, and so the, the first idea that came to mind was uh, Cochran at the gates of, of heaven, and St. Peter was saying to, to Johnny, I'm sorry, Johnny, if the halo don't fit, we don't admit. <laughs> An obvious cartoon, uh, you know, perfectly legitimate because yeah. it really defined uh, a lawyer who got a murderer off on this charge. But when I did research on Johnny Cochran and, and found out who he was, I mean, everybody sees him encapsulated in that one issue. But when you look at his, his career, he was very generous in many ways, and he, he was very uh, proactive in charitable causes. And I felt it was, it was not fair to define him by one thing. So a lot of hmm. times in political cartoons, we'll think about, we're good editorial cartoons, should think about you know, the consequences of what we do and, and uh, you know, what the message is that we're making. Another example that I'll bring up tonight uh, is, is on the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger when it exploded. Yeah. And a lot of, the, uh, a lot of uh, what was surrounding that incident was the question of whether or not NASA cutbacks had really gone into the safety issues right. surrounding the Challenger. And so the initial idea that I thought of was this, you know, the pieces of the, sh the Challenger flying across the sky with a with a word bubble coming out of one of the very tiny pieces saying, boy, these NASA cutbacks are really killing us. But then again, <laughs> seven American heroes had yeah. died. And was that a fair depiction? Or would the controversy surrounding that image really uh, take away from the message that I was trying to, to, to convey? So that's where it comes down uh, to, really. Do you have a formula for when is too soon? You know, it's just a gut reaction thing. Uh, and again... If it's, if it's a really great idea that involves a controversy, but I think where the message is very, very important, you know, I might delay it just a little bit just so that uh, people don't recoil. Well, you know, getting back to the book, um, it's amazing because you got some really some big heavy hitters here to write the uh, afterword and the forward. You got Rush Limbaugh, who wrote the afterword to your book, and Vice President Dick Cheney wrote the forward. Now, the left loves to portray him as Darth Vader and this humorless old gargoyle. <laughs> can we dispel that myth right now? Does Dick Cheney have a sense of humor? You absolutely can. Dick has a great sense of humor, and he's and as you can read in the in the in the introduction himself, he's very funny. And what I love about him is, you know, speaking of blunt politicians and people tell it like it is. I, I love that about Dick Cheney. I mean, he he will tell you directly to your face exactly what he thinks. And uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and, he, and he's, a, he's a wise man. I'm very proud to be his friend. And, and uh, you know, Rush and I have been friends for a long time. Um, 
In fact, uh, I uh, Paul Shanklin, who does the impersonations on the Rush Limbaugh show, oh. is a very good friend of mine, and I discovered oh, really? him in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm the reason why Paul is actually on Rush's show. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. How, how long have you known Rush? Well, you know, I, I, I've known him through that relationship uh, since, let me see, when did I start at the Commercial Appeal? Probably 94. So 90, okay. 95, I think, is when, when uh, that relationship started. Okay, he's a funny guy. He's a he, guy who loves to laugh, isn't he? He is a he's a he's a great intellect, and he's got a great sense of humor. And I think that's what really the departure between Rush Limbaugh and everybody else is. Mm-hmm. I mean, what he's done for the conservative movement has just been enormous. And I think a large part of that is this great sense of humor that yeah. that accompanies this. You know, the brilliant. Uh, concise messages that he has. Yeah, he is a great anecdote for that element within the party that takes itself a little too seriously. Because yeah. you do have, you have a lot of hosts and you have a lot of outrage kind of thrown willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I, I feel bad for him because sometimes I feel that people who are listening don't get when he's being sarcastic. And right. they, they can't see the wink that he's giving as he's saying something. Absolutely. And you, and you know what? Humor is a very, very powerful, potent weapon if you, you use it the right yeah. way. And I think it, it also has the ability to, to reach a much larger audience with your message. And it kind of, it, it can be disarming to those people that are, you know, completely opposed to you. So, yeah. you know, I, I utilize humor in my cartoons because I think it, it'll, it'll have a bigger impact. Yeah. Well, somewhere I read that you originally planned to study medicine when you were in college, but you drew a political <laughs> cartoon for the college newspaper when you were at UC Irvine, and that's how this lifelong obsession with poking fun at the powers that be began. What was that very first political cartoon? Well, you know, the very the very first political cartoon was on the student election at the uh, at UCI, and. Uh, None of the candidates that were running had a platform, a legitimate reason to run. So I basically made fun of all of them. <laughs> now, I, I never envisioned being a political cartoonist. I never thought about it. In fact, I, I've got some of my brothers and sisters here at the, at the library visiting, um, and they're all doctors. I'm the only <laughs> one who's not a doctor in the family. I'm the black sheep. And in fact, the only That's way a that I— good black sheep to be. Well, the only way I can attend the family reunion is, you know, I tell people, well— you know, I deal with politicians, so I'm sort of like a proctologist, and then they just <laughs> let me in the family reunion. But, uh, and, and I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, that uh, you know, Barack Obama basically won a Nobel Peace Prize for doing absolutely nothing. I wanted yeah. to be a cardiovascular surgeon. I should get a Nobel Peace Prize for all the lives I saved by becoming a journalist instead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what was the reaction to that first cartoon back when you were in college? Was that well-received by the student body and the faculty or no? Well, in my eyes, it was well-received. In their eyes, it was three days' worth of protests, actually. Oh, you're kidding me. No, you know, and, and that's really what uh, cinched it for me. I mean, at least began my career. You know, I'd been writing, uh, I'd been writing for the newspaper, and it didn't have nearly the impact that this one image did. And, uh, you know, I was a triple major, uh, biological sciences, fine arts, studio painting, and art history. And the only reason why I was taking the latter two was to get into medical school. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize the power of the image. Yeah. And I think that really, that, that, that piqued my interest. It wasn't until my junior year in college where we had an incident. Uh, the, a local newspaper, the Newport Ensign, picked me up right away. And in between organic chemistry and bio 101, I was... Uh, you know, whipping out cartoons in 30 minutes and getting $50. And really? There was an incident where this guy um, got pulled over in, in Newport Beach, arrested for drunk driving, uh, 
didn't they didn't allow him a phone call. He turned out to be a, a Newport a city councilman, I think, that didn't drink. So I drew this cartoon where I had this guy hogtied on the hood of a police car, and he had his shoe wedged in his mouth, and the arresting officer was explaining to the uh, his, his sergeant, I was merely reinforcing his constitutional right to remain silent. <laughs> and the police chief was so mad that he came down to the office and he yelled at the publisher and he yelled at the editor, and then uh, he tried to find out where I lived. And suddenly it dawned on me, like, you know, what a profound impact these drawings have. And I think that was the minute I fell in love with the art form. Yeah, well, that's a little scary to have, you know, the police chief you're looking for your ad, for your address. Well, have you ever had any close calls like that where you were a little bit afraid that you well, might there might be some kind of more than just a little bit of blowback to one of your pieces? You know, I have been investigated by the Secret Service. You know right. that's right. Let's yo let let's talk about that and story. I, would, I, I you know one. I get the most wonderful hate mail. I mean I I've actually had hate <laughs> mail where people have taken the time and cut out letters and you know pasted it to uh, to pieces of paper. And so oh my god, we, that's we, not we, just been, in the movies that people no, do that. No no no. In fact, <laughs> some of this you know if it gets too bad, you have to for, actually forward it to the police just in case something happens. Yeah. But, uh, I didn't think anyone know, still do, did you know, that. I, we have printers now. I, I, told, I told my mom to stop writing me at the papers, and so it stopped. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk about that one incident that you that you just referenced a moment ago in July 2003. You published a cartoon showing a man pointing a gun at President Bush's head in what was, for most people, I think, clearly a spoof of that famous photo of the Vietnamese general executing a Viet Cong prisoner. That situation escalated <laughs> in a way you probably weren't expecting. What happened there? Well, you know what? It, it actually materialized, I think, because of the Drudge Report, uh, you know, the banner uh, headline on the Drudge Report that said... Huh. Uh, conservative cartoonist investigated by the uh, Secret Service. And in <laughs> fact, uh, y- you know, I, I, I knew the, the morning crew, uh, which is a very popular uh, group of guys in the radio station in Memphis, Tennessee. And the first I heard of it was they called me, uh, you know, at, I think it was 5 o'clock Pacific time because, you know, it was 7 o'clock their time. And they were joking about how I was being investiga- investigated by the Secret Service. And I had no clue what they were talking about, so I sort of went along with it. By the time I got into the, to my office at the LA Times, we had already, I think they, they added like three operators to handle all the phone calls from the controversy surrounding this cartoon and, and the story. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're getting calls from all the major networks about this. And, and so I was handling all these calls, and then... I got this one phone call out of the blue that said, uh, you know, are you Michael Ramirez? And I said, yes. And he goes, well, I need to speak with you. And I said, well, you're going to have to get in line. And he said, well, I'm with the Secret Service. And I said, well, how do I know you're with the Secret Service? And he said, well, I've got dark sunglasses, a dark suit, and a badge. And I said, well, by all means, you must be the Secret Service. (laughs) Come on down. And so I thought it was a crank call. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, like you know, I think it was 15 minutes later, my secretary said, uh, Mr. Ramirez, the Secret Service is here to see you. <laughs> and wow. I thought about it for a minute, and, and I thought, well, let me see, I haven't really, uh, I haven't counterfeited anything lately, so I'll just go down and talk to him. And, of course, the uh, the L.A. Times stopped that immediately and dispatched our, our lawyers down to greet him and then dispatched him. Oh, but, you know, wow. what I found out, though... Uh, um, because a, fr- a friend of mine, uh, Chris Cox, you know, uh, actually looked into it, and he was a congressman at the time. And uh, 
what I, I think what they ultimately found out was that there wasn't actually an investigation. Somebody had talked about an investigation of the Khartoum. And then uh, the L.A. Department of the Secret Service saw the buzz surrounding this, this uh, incident and thought, well, maybe we should be investigating this. And so they sent somebody to find out what was oh, going on. So, okay, so it didn't come from the top then. I don't, uh, you know, they never revealed a, 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 you know, a chain of command directive on it. Now, I'm assuming you're you're a very well-known conservative. I assume yes. you've met President Bush? Well, you know, I, I hadn't met, it was George W. Bush. I'd met yeah. his dad, but okay. I hadn't met George W. Bush. And I, I thought that was kind of ironic that a yeah. conservative administration would be investigating a conservative cartoonist. But So you can still go through the airports, right? You can still fly. Well, you know, you're <laughs> assuming that, I, that I'm not already on the no-fly zone for other reasons. But yeah, yes. okay, fair enough. <laughs> and, you know, I've still got that metal plate in my head, too, so that's... Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Michael Ramirez. Folks, do you like to read, but you don't have the time? Give audiobooks a try. All those times you spend listening to this podcast, you can also be listening to a great book. You can play it on your drive to work, on a run, in the bathtub, while cooking, or just sitting and enjoying one of those rare stolen moments. And right now, you can download any audiobook you want for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free download of any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics, or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist Michael Ramirez. Michael, let's talk about your process. When you're watching the news or when you're looking at the headlines, looking at the day's current events, is there any particular criteria or angle that you're looking for? Well, you know, in my uh, current position with Investors Business Daily, which is the greatest editorial page in the entire world, um, <laughs> you know, I co-manage the editorial page at IBD. So um, in my capacity as a co-manager of the editorial page, I'm looking at all relevant news events um, in preparation for the editorial meetings from 8 to 10. And, and so... The only thing, the only drawback about doing political cartoons is you only have one window of opportunity to explain sometimes very complex issues. Mm -hmm. So you have to be aware of what the, the viewing public knows. I mean, you can't really pull out an issue out of nowhere because they won't understand the concept that you're trying to convey. So I do, you know, I, I, I read all the popular websites. All, you know, I read four papers a day. Some people say that the truth lies somewhere between Online the New York Times. Online or physical papers? I, you know, I, I take you? two physical newspapers, and I read the rest online. But, you know, okay. I, I think the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and IBD, of course. Um, IBD being the best. <laughs> IBD is the best. IBD You're not biased at all. No, no. I, I'm a free market capitalist pig. Can you, can you tell? <laughs> Investors.com slash cartoons. But uh, anyways, um, and... And so what I'll do is I'll watch television at every half hour point. And that really, huh. 
is what most of the people are seeing or getting as their news resource. Now, I'll just use that as sort of a, a jumping off point, but there's usually items and issues that I'm thinking about all the time. And, and you know, the question is timing, the logistics of whether it is a current news event yeah. or, you know, these things only have a, a shelf life of maybe 48 hours in this, yeah. in this 24-7 news cycle. And so yeah, I, I don't look out for any particular issues, just the ones that I think that are going to have huge, serious consequences uh, for the people. Huh. And that's interesting that you, you try to hit every half hour point. I guess, is that part of it that you, you want to make sure that people get the joke? You, right. want to have the, you want to make sure that the issue is broad enough and well-known enough right. that it actually hits its target with folks. Well, it has to have a, a big enough profile so people understand what I'm talking about. Because, you know, yeah. one thing you don't want to weigh a cartoon down with, with is with a lot of verbiage. Because people don't want to read mm-hmm. the cartoon. They want to visualize it. Huh. Um, most of your cartoons are intended to be humorous or satire. Every now and then you have these cartoons that kind of reminds me of sitcoms in the 70s and 80s, how, you know, 15 out of 20 episodes would be typical sitcoms and funny. And then every now and then they would try and sneak in a serious one. You know, right. it would always end with the credits rolling with no music. Right. And so right. you do that every now and then you slip in a very, you know, a cartoon that actually is poignant and really touches a different place with the reader. When you're looking at, at doing a cartoon, how do you know which issues you want to go serious with? Well, you know, on you know, the cartoons that touch people, it depends when the court order, restraining order, you know, <laughs> wears out. But you know what? Some, sometimes these issues are very, very serious and dark, and, and, yeah. and that's the best approach to, uh, to really convey the point that you're trying to make. And, and you know, I think... The, the problem with political cartooning today is it's been sort of relegated to being kind of like the Tonight Show monologue where yeah. they're just making humorous anecdotes about current events. I want my cartoons to be reflect something more serious than that, serious journalism, and make a very profound point. And sometimes, you know, a dark image conveys that the best way. You know, of my... Uh, I never intended to be a political cartoonist, but when I grew up with, uh, you know, with my dad, we had a tradition of reading the newspaper every morning. And, uh, you know, we, we took the LA Times and the Orange County Register, and halfway through breakfast, we would swap papers. And, uh, you know, I never thought about being a political cartoonist, but I was aware of the political cartoons. And in the LA Times, they had Paul Conrad, who was just a master of these kind of dark, dark foreboding images. And in the Orange County Register, we had my friend Jeff McNally, who used this wonderful drawing style, this flair for drawing, and the and humor as a very, very, you know, active vehicle to really convey a, a, a strong message. My cartoons are a combination of both, but every once in a while, I think it's that dark image that just sort of captures your attention. In fact, you know, with political cartoons, the more concise the image is, the more effective it is. One of my favorite cartoons that I've ever drawn was in my first book, you know, uh, Everybody Has a Right to My Opinion, was just an image of an American flag that was slowly unraveling. Mm. And uh, you could just immediately understand the, the context of the cartoon and get the gist of what I was saying. I think those are very, very powerful images. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to me that stylistically, in many ways, political cartoons really have not changed much since the 19th century. Why do you think that is? 
You know, I, I think it's because none of us can really draw, which is why we're political cartoonists. No. <laughs> no. Okay. You know, That's I, honest. Okay. I, I think I think um, you're no slouch, though, as a as an artist. Well, thanks. You know, I. Ironically enough, I don't like to draw that much because the images that I come up with in my mind's eye are so much better than my ability to really? convey them as an as an artist. In fact, I, I don't even think of political cartooning as an art. But you know, I people know where I stand. They they know philosophically who I am, and and really, the only way to draw them in is to utilize uh, people's love for illustration. Hmm. As it's sort of like the bait and the trap, yeah. you know. If you can make it interesting enough visually, then people are drawn to the visual medium. And if you can make it interesting enough, regardless of, of you know, uh, they're going to know where I stand, they're going to want to take a look. And once they take a look, boom, you got them in the trap. Yeah, and, you know, I wonder if actually maybe we're entering the, the golden age of political cartooning because— are you we, saying that because Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump may win? That doesn't hurt. That <laughs> damn sure doesn't hurt. But, you know, in this soundbite era where everyone, you know, is used to little snippets on Facebook, no one wants to read a full editorial article. Right. Perhaps political cartooning is entering a new golden age. Maybe you're onto something here. But, you know, with our ADD uh, nation, exactly. that, that may be actually true. I'm hoping that the cartoons, though, themselves will just be the catalyst for people to, mm. to reflect more deeply into these issues. In fact, you know, I'm one of those people that think that, that newspapers made a huge mistake of trying to compete with you know, 24-7 cable uh, coverage huh. uh, by, by going to the digestive formats. I think what yeah. newspapers had better than those, and maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part, was they could give you depth in reporting yeah. and, and details in these issues, which are more and more important. You know, our, our founding fathers believed in the importance of journalism. In fact, yeah. uh, uh, Jefferson once wrote, our liberty depends on the freedom of the press, and that cannot be limited without it being lost. But the caveat to that was you had to have an in informed constituency mm -hmm. as part of the responsibility of a self-governing republic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where, where these politicians have a responsibility to uh, you know, follow what the, the voters want. The voters themselves have a responsibility to find out what these people represent. And if that's what you're looking for, then go to Investors Business Daily. That's right. That's great. They still Here, get it right, huh? Here's another thousand dollars. Boy, these payola well, and, and podcasts are much, much more than I ever expected. Well, were there times when an editor surely there must have been moments where they shot down a cartoon or thought it was too controversial? And looking back now, you can say, yeah, they made the right call. They kind of <laughs> saved my butt on that one. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm pretty good, actually, at self-editing and, and okay. uh, you know, figuring out which ones will fly and which ones won't. Uh, in fact, I've only had one cartoon canned in my entire career. The editor that had hired me, uh, Lionel Linder, had died in this horrible accident on, on New Year's Eve day. Wow. And so he was replaced by Angus McCarran from uh, the Pittsburgh uh, Tribune and uh, uh, Pittsburgh Post Tribune. And Angus was known as a formidable editor, but more from the progressive realm. And Lionel was very conservative, mm. the opposite polar mm. opposite. And so we we had well, well we had we had people civic leaders lined up for days in Memphis trying to get me fired for the whole first week wow. that Angus was there, and. Um, you know, there was a rumor going around that uh, Angus had hired, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who was working for the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Post 
And the, the, the rumor was that he was going to come down and replace me uh, down down in Memphis, Tennessee. And he actually called me up and said, don't worry about it. It's just a rumor. Besides, I'll never work for that jerk ever again, which was not very reassuring <laughs> from my point of view. But um, Angus killed one of my cartoons three days into to taking over at the Commercial Appeal. And the cartoon was on Workfare. And I had uh, uh, Uncle Sam as a bum sitting in a uh, alleyway and lying down with some other bums. And he's looking at a newspaper that says Workfare. And he's holding a sign that says, we'll work for food. And he's leaning next to the bum next to him saying, uh, you mean they expect us to work? <laughs> now, it was a completely g- legitimate cartoon. And after he canned it, uh, you know, I went up to his office and I, said, and I said, this is a legitimate cartoon. Uh, I think it ought to run. And he said, it's not going to run in this newspaper. And I said, well, it's going wow. to go to my syndicate. It's going to run in the 450 other newspapers in the country. And he said, yeah. that's fine as long as it's not this newspaper. And so, um, you know, basically we agreed that I wasn't going to do another cartoon. And uh, I thought it was legitimate. It was going to my syndicate. And so at the end of the week, I said, uh, you know, look, Angus, uh, my job as a political cartoonist is to research the... the uh, the issue and to come up with a visual metaphor for it. And uh, that's what I'll do. If you want somebody to draw your ideas, you got seven guys here in this paper that can draw better than me. I think you ought to fire me and fire me right now because I'm not going to do it. It has my name on it. And, uh, you know, I, I will back these cartoons up. I will substantiate them and I will draw them the best way that I can and I will win you a Pulitzer Prize. But if you want your ideas, then I think you ought to draw them or get somebody on this staff to draw them. But I want you to fire me, and I want you to do it now. And he just started laughing, and he said, no, I like what you do. And from that point on, Angus and I became really, really good friends. And uh, that was the only cartoon I ever got uh, killed wow. in my career. And you know, i got to be honest, Angus was, was one of the best editors I ever had. Really? I mean, we would. What made him such a great editor? Well, he would challenge me, uh, you know, in the substance of, of, of the issues. In fact, at the editorial meetings, it was more often the case than not, where Angus and I would just start <laughs> screaming at each other and debating the issue, and ultimately he would kick me out of the editorial meeting. And as I was walking out of the editorial meeting, I'd say, "But I'm going to draw a cartoon on it." And he said, "Of course." <laughs> and so it, it, it was it, it was a great dynamic because it was very challenging, and I think that's good. Well, I'm curious, since you brought it up, um, in the world of political cartoons, is it like most other arts in that it leans quite heavily to the left? What, what, what are your contemporaries like? Uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, we're outnumbered probably 90 to 1. If, really? If that. You think so? Yeah. No, the, the conservative cartoonists are very few. In fact, uh, you know, I was giving a speech at, the, I think it was the National Hispanic Journalists Association. They, they introduced me as one of the leading minorities <laughs> in, in America. And I think uh, my response to that was I. You personally were one of the leading ma- minorities in journalism. <laughs> That's a lot to in put on in your journalism, shoulder. yeah. Okay. But because I'd won a couple of Pulitzers, which don't really count because I'm still paying them off. But uh, <laughs> in my response to that was, yeah, I'm, I'm in what constitutes the smallest minority uh, in America, which is a conservative journalist. <laughs> and I think that's true. I think that's yeah. true throughout. I mean, I've, we've seen in surveys, you know, obviously, and you can see it uh, through the kind of irresponsible coverage in the mainstream media where, where you know, it's funny. I, I just thought of this idea, but uh, I'm, I'm going to probably do this cartoon at some point. But um, where Hillary was talking about, uh, you know, if we could just train a dog to bark when, when it hears lies, because the images that immediately come to mind is her being treed up by 
you know, a bunch of dogs, a pack of dogs yeah, barking yeah. at her. But, but uh, I thought of this I idea like where she's, she's got this lap dog sleeping in her, in her lap. And she's saying that, and, and the lap dog is labeled the media. Uh, you know, they're there. We just need to train them to bark when they, when they actually hear the lies. And there are plenty yeah. of lies out there. Yeah. Um, well, do you have possibly, as cartoonists go, do you have a nemesis on the left or your equal? Uh, you know, I, I don't even think about that. Uh, yeah. You know, this is a very personal profession, and I'm you really thinking of it. You Newman, like on Seinfeld or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's probably just me. I think I challenge myself more than, than anybody. Uh, but, you know, I, I've got to, I have to say, I'm, I'm really unaware of my competition. Really? I don't look at other cartoons. I, you know, I don't even think about that in terms of, of that. You know, we, all, we all cover the same events. Um, so at some point we'll probably, you know, have similar ideas and stuff. And so I, I don't even want to deal with it. So I don't even think about it. I mean, I have people whose work I do admire, um, and have admired for a long time, but it's, uh, you know, I only get to see other cartoons when I'm produced on a page with other cartoons and there, are, and there happen to be other cartoonists on the page. Well, before we go, I just want to ask you real quickly, what, or perhaps even who makes you laugh? Um, I mean, everything makes me laugh, actually. You know, I've got this evil sense of humor where, um, where I can see the humor in every situation. And I I have to tell you, in dealing with politics, if you don't have that ability, uh, it can be very, very tragic life. Um, and and let me go back to the question about my nemesis. You know, my nemesis is... Did you think of someone? Yeah, well, I I thought of a group. My nemesis is... Politicians, look. Really, uh, not political correctness. No, no. Well, political correctness. I just, as you can see from this interview and from my cartoons, I just politely ignore it and have <laughs> done so for 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 a long time. But you know what? What seems to be lost because of your of these career political celebrities, we're lulled into thinking it is we who work for them, when mm-hmm. in fact it is they who work for us. And that's my job, is to convey to the voters that they have the power, that in a self-governing democratic republic, that uh, you know this institution of government works for them. And uh, because government has become so large uh, and uh, so out of control, I mean, $128 trillion in unfunded liabilities due to entitlements, $19 trillion in national debt, Obama's uh, last budget was, uh, you know, $4 trillion. To put that in perspective, I think at the apex of George W. Bush, who we criticize rightly so for spending, with a Republican-led Congress in both the House and the Senate, I think the federal outlay was like somewhere in the middle of $2.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. And the deficit was an enormous, enormous $160 billion. That was just nine years ago. And now... You know, the budget's $4 trillion. With, you're going to have a $1 trillion deficit. It's crazy. Yeah. Government's out of control. It's people who constitute the government. They're called politicians, and they're my nemesis. Does that mean you're a Trump man? No. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm a Trump man. I'm, you know, I'm, you I'm, must be thankful for Trump, though. I mean, that's, the well, comedy I, gods are very generous this cycle, I think. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity offender. And, yeah. and like everybody else, I'm frustrated with the government. And there are things that I like— uh, that that uh, about what Trump is saying, but 
this is this a very, very serious time for America, and people need to look very carefully at these candidates, not in just what they're saying, but in what they've done and what they've said before. And yeah. I think you can define Trump by his history, and if you look carefully into his backgrounds, that'll define what, what, what he really truly represents. Now, yeah. populist is, is great, but you know, have to keep it in its context. A populist is a populist, and they're yeah. saying what the people, what's popular at the moment. Yeah. I want a strict constitutional constitutionalist, you know, um, somebody who has a foundation of knowledge based in the philosophy that formulated what is the most extraordinary experiment in, in history, which is America. Well, again, the book is called Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. And you can also see Michael Ramirez's cartoons in Investor's Business Daily. Michael Ramirez, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks. And can I throw in subliminal messages like investor.com slash cartoons on Twitter at Ramirez Tunes? Oh, absolutely. What was that voice? Where did that come from? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, disembodied voice. I love it. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I enjoy enjoy what you guys are doing. I mean, keep up the great work. Yeah, likewise. Right back at you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks again to Michael Ramirez for coming on the show. And I also want to thank the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library for hosting our interview. If you've never visited the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, it's a spectacular facility. And if you like Ronald Reagan, you have to go there at least once in your lifetime. So do yourself a favor and go check it out sometime. I'll include Amazon links in the show notes for this episode and on our website, where you can order Michael Ramirez's new book of cartoons called Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare, as well as his previous book, Everyone has a right to my opinion. You can follow him on Twitter at at Ramirez Tunes. That's R-A-M-I-R-E-Z-T-O-O-N-S. And you can view his regular cartoons for Investors Business Daily at ibdeditorials.com backslash cartoons. Don't forget to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a review. I'd also appreciate it if you went on our site and filled out a brief audience survey. And please recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on social media. And if you really want to help us out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to our website and click the donate button. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. On the next podcast, I'll talk with the only man who's ever been director of both the CIA and the NSA, four-star General Michael Hayden. General Hayden and I will have a very candid talk about intelligence failures on 9-11 and what he did as NSA director and later as director of the CIA to close those intelligence gaps. We'll discuss the conundrum of domestic surveillance, CIA black sites, and enhanced interrogation. Plus, we'll talk about cyber warfare, James Bond, the Apple encryption controversy, the personal toll of keeping America's secrets, and why U.S. military may be obligated to reject orders from a President Donald Trump. 
coming up with General Michael Hayden in the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.